Welcome back to another episode of A Gift from Adversity. My name is Julie Love. I'm your host. Today we are recording episode 127. Before I introduce our guest, I want to introduce my book, which is the same title as this podcast. It's called A Gift from Adversity, and it's available on Amazon. The subtitle of this book is Overcoming Sexual Abuse, Domestic Violence, Bullying, and Homelessness. After I published this book, I got a lot of message from a lot of people sharing their adversities. I felt really compelled to start this platform two years ago, and I'm very honored and humbled to have so many wonderful guests so far coming from all over the world, sharing their stories, but also some tools that they use to overcome these challenges and a gift that came from it. So let's invite tonight's guest. Hello, John. Thank you very much for coming to a gift from adversity tonight. How you doing, Jerry? Good, thank you. So can you tell our audience your name, yeah. where you're coming in from, what you yeah. do, and if you have any website or social media you want to promote? Sure. Uh, my name is John Abuquillo, and I am in Worcester, Massachusetts. Um, I work as an executive producer for a small um, production company called Manny J Media here in Worcester, and I'm involved with a lot of uh, local productions, um, you know, different small uh, small movies, and slowly but surely we're working our way up. We have um, a bunch of different things, Manny J Media on Facebook, Instagram, uh, TikTok, and then we have a website, uh, www.mjmllc.com. And then when you are doing this artwork, what are main focus of your production? So we focus on community media. And the reason why we do that is because we feel that the media landscape has really shifted over the last 10 to 15 years to where almost all the major companies have a pay uh, paywall or a subscription model, which means that when you go onto their website or you go onto their show, you have to do something, some transaction of some kind to really access whatever the um, the core uh product is but most people when they see a paywall especially people that come from a poor background or a middle income background they're not going to pay for that and so they really lose access to that information but a lot of that information should be available for free so here in the city of worcester we uh you know pretty much starting during covid we started to cover some of the city events, you know, the the mayor and the city council and the city manager and those kind of things. And we put them on Facebook for free. And we found that people enjoyed that content. Excuse me. <clears throat> and so we've continued to do that uh, since. That's very interesting. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. So let's dive into our first question, which is the adversity. So, John, can you tell our audience, what was your adversity? So, I, I would say that I have a long list to answer that question. Um, but the I'm going to talk about a little bit the, the genesis of why I'm even on the show. 
in that um, I've spent two two sections of my life homeless. I was homeless as a child um, in 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 more than one period of time, but basically from six to eleven. Um, you know, my family and I, we lived on the streets. So in different places, in different towns around the city of Massachusetts, state of Massachusetts. But um, my mom was a single mom and it was me and my two sisters. And, um, you know, we often would, you know, just have to stay in different shelters. And um, sometimes we stayed in the train stations, bus stations. Um, <clears throat> and this is in the late 1980s and the early 1990s. So, um some of the systems that we see in place now for families that are going through homelessness, they didn't exist then. So it wasn't really, um, it wasn't, it wasn't easy for my mom to get a placement in like a, an emergency shelter. So sometimes we just had to stay wherever it was we could stay. The longest place that we lived in was South Station in Boston. So we lived inside of South Station for a, a period of time. If you've ever been to that train station, it used to have um, the post office used to be um, on the area where the commuter rail is. And that post office used to be the biggest post office in, in Massachusetts. And so kind of in between those hallways, a lot of folks that are struggling and homeless, they'll stay in there because the the, the doors are open uh, pretty late for the people coming back from the commuter rail. So you could kind of sneak in, get down those hallways and it's pretty warm in those buildings, and so a lot of people would stay in there. Sometimes people stay on the tracks or out on the platform um, because it's also kind of warm there because the engines for the trains. Um, but generally speaking, the families, they would kind of let us go inside. So I did that. And then what happened was that adversity growing up led to me being very angry, right, as a child. I was a very angry child, and I was a very angry teenager. And I acted out on my anger um, and I did really uh, not great things. You know, I would get into fights at school. I would, um, uh, you know, I would I would talk back to my mom and I would yell and scream at my sisters. And I was just I was a very angry young man. And eventually I got so angry that I I started uh, doing worse things. Right. So I, I committed crimes in my early 20s as a response to how I grew up. Those crimes led me to go to jail, something that you didn't know until just right now. And when I was in jail, um, I I started to kind of understand myself, I guess, a little bit better. I spent more time reading and engaging with people. But when I got out of jail, I was homeless again. And um, because the system is not set up for people when they get out of prison. So when you when I transitioned back home, my initial uh, place that I lived was in a motel. And then uh, I ran out of money and I ended up at the bus station here in Worcester, Massachusetts. And so um, I was kind of, you know, going back and forth between those places. And um, the thing that I gained, I guess, um, you know, from that adversity was that I guess I don't think of it in a negative way because I went through so many things. I was able to um, not feel like that they're negative. It's almost like it is just something else that I was going through. It became like it was a regular day, you know. So being homeless as a kid kind of prepared me to be homeless as an adult, if that makes sense. Well, thank you so much for sharing that and then um, being very honest and vulnerable and then should I like and I know you are not from this country originally. 
so my mom and dad were both born in Ireland. And um, uh, my mom came over here when she was very, very young. And my dad came over here when he was a teenager. So I, I'm, I'm, I was born here, but they, they were not. And so um, it was interesting because their uh, Irish immigrants are often not counted as immigrants in our country now, right? So um, because we look like a lot of the folks around this area, okay? So it's pretty normal to see someone who looks like me in Boston, right? You know, red beard, Irish, it's very, very common. So some of the obstacles that folks who are immigrants from other countries have to overcome those obstacles still happen to my parents, but people don't care as much because most of the time when you look like me, it's very easy, right? Especially in this area. So what ended up happening was um, sometimes they would go to apply for stuff, particularly my mom. She would like apply for benefits and she would get denied, not because she didn't need them, but because they thought there was other people that needed it more than her. So she had to fight to get uh, things a lot of a lot of times. So that made me resentful, too. I would be resentful against uh, authority. And, you know, so when I would go to school, I would be mad. And, and those things really contributed to that angry uh, period of my life when I was a teenager and then into my early 20s. So are you kind of talking about reverse discrimination? A little bit. And it's not to say that. I haven't benefited from how I look because I have, but I would say that back then it was a little bit difficult for them to achieve the same, you know, um, opportunities because people didn't think we needed it as much, which is, which is true. But normally when you have a family and you have a bunch of people that are here, but our family was not really large here and it wasn't really connected even when we were here together. So, my mom and dad got divorced when I was four. And so my dad's family and my mom's family were just not happy with each other. So they were very separate and, and not really um, willing to work with each other. So any resources that maybe we would have had to access, we didn't. And then because the agencies didn't really look at us as a... Um, you know, as a family that needed as much, it became a little bit harder for us to access stuff. Now... There was paths that way, but we responded in a very negative way. And because our because of the negative way that we responded, it made it more and more difficult. When I started getting in trouble as a as a juvenile, that made it harder for my mom to get stuff. So my response to the to the I, I don't want to say I'd revert maybe reverse discrimination is not the right word, but maybe just the short sightedness of of local government made it even harder because I was so angry and I kept getting in trouble that my mother wasn't able to get the things that she needed to take care of her and my sisters. So it became um, it became a necessary step when I was about 11 that my mom just had to send me off into the system. So, you know, I started living in foster homes and um, and, and then I ended up in DYS. You know, that's uh, they don't call it that now. I, I think it's DCF, but the Department of Youth Services, because I was just so upset. I couldn't, it was hard to control me. I was very, very difficult uh, to deal with. And then, of course, I'm a big dude, um, and I've always been this big. Since I was 12 years old, I've been six feet tall, 
and about 225 pounds. And I, and I, and I had a beard and everything when I was about 12 years old. So when you saw me, you looked and saw a guy, a man, and I was, and I was bigger than the kids. So they had to get me out of those situations because I was just not, you couldn't control me back then. I was, I was out of control. Let me ask you about living in South Asian. How were you going to school? So that's a good that's a good question. My mom made me go to school. She made me get on the bus. She made me walk to school, depending on which school that I was in. Um, and in Boston, they have a um, a system of of busing, so they send people to different sections of the city. So she just made me go to school. There was no excuse, and uh, and and weirdly enough, I'm really I was really good at school, <laughs> and it was because my mother, she made me do my homework. She didn't she didn't let the idea of being poor or being homeless stop us from having to do what we had to do. So, in, I would I would get in trouble at school, but usually it was after school that I would get in trouble. So like when we were going home, then I would get into fights or something. But during class. I would pay attention because my mother was really focused on that and she pushed it. She said, you got to, you got to pay attention in school. You got to read, you got to study, you got to do those things. So even when we started to kind of break away from being homeless and get into like the cycle of apartments and living in, you know, tenement houses and projects and those kind of places, she, she had already instilled in me that I needed to go to school. So even when I ended up in foster care, I still I still paid attention in school because I was doing it for my mom. It was the only thing that I could do for my mom was to be good at school. So question, how were you guys bathing? Like, you know, when you were homeless, were you like, where were you taking shower or brushing your teeth and stuff? That's another great question. Sometimes we didn't, you know. Sometimes when you're homeless, you can't, those services aren't available. And I know that today those services are more available for people, but realistically in the, in the late eighties and the early nineties, those systems didn't exist in the way that they do now. And so, you know, sometimes I wouldn't take a shower for some days and sometimes I wouldn't brush my teeth for some days. Um, and sometimes we just did what we could, you know, um, my mother did everything she could. And I mean everything she could to to get us opportunities to to have showers, to have clothes. Um, you know, she went to um, food banks and she went to Salvation Army and she went to all those different places that would help out families like this. And, she, and we were in, you know, programs and welfare and everything she could do. She did. But sometimes we had to go without. Sometimes we didn't eat. It just it depended on the on the situation. I can tell you this, though, despite the fact that we had those things. Um, I don't think that I ever felt like that I didn't have anything. I, I was upset about what was happening, but I didn't I didn't think at the time that I didn't have food or, or clothes or whatever. I just thought it was normal what we were going through. Did you see other children around you guys too? Absolutely. So one of the common misperceptions about people that are living on the streets is that everybody's a drug addict or everybody's uh has mental health issues or that everybody is somehow troubled that's not the case at all and that narrative has continued to this day and it's completely 100 false what happens is is that 
homelessness is not necessarily caused by a thing that the person did wrong. Sometimes homelessness is just caused because the system itself doesn't doesn't take care of that person. It doesn't support that that crack that uh, the person slips through. So there were many other families that were around us. And what ended up happening is those are the people that are probably the closest friends I've ever had in my life because they experienced exactly the same thing that we experienced. So those people um, and those families, you know, uh, many times in the train station, and it still happens today, you can see young kids that are there. Um, and, you know, so so I had friends and we would run around together. We would play games. Again, we wouldn't even think that it was n- not normal because we had the same things that you would have in a neighborhood you would have in a place that you happen to have people that are unhoused. So there might be five or six or seven families. And then sometimes when they did make a push for shelters, and they usually did it around Christmas time in the winter, they would try to get people, as many people as they could into the shelters because they didn't want you know it to look bad for Christmas. So um, they would get us into the shelters and we would be with kids and we would be with families in those places. So, and they would come from all over the city of Boston, um, and 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 there's a bunch of uh, different places um, that um, that are kind of known for that in that area. So, and then when we ended up uh, in like Brockton and then in Worcester, same again. There's very uh, specifically known shelters that families kind of end up in together. So, John, you mentioned about you getting in trouble. And then uh, eventually you have to go to adult prison. That's right. How was it being a white person being in jail where majority black folks are locked up? Well, that's a great question. Um, In Massachusetts, um, I would say that all of the racial tension that exists in the prisons is, is forced upon the inmates by the guards. So the guards, they they want to keep the inmates divided. They want to keep um, people upset with each other. And so, remember, I grew up mostly on the streets, right? So living on the streets, you don't really have the time to think about, you know, whether someone's Black or Hispanic or Asian or Irish. You just have to focus on survival, right? So by the time I ended up in adult prison... I was used to people being different. You know, it just I was used to people being different. And I didn't um I didn't really like that there was these divisions. So I really tried to be friends with as many people as possible, right? And the fact is is that when you're in prison, prison is a very dangerous place. And at any moment that you could get you could get hurt, you could say the wrong thing and the person could want to kill you. And so I just learned to get along with many people. I had an advantage, and the advantage also is is that I'm a big dude. And so generally speaking, if you are a bigger person, you are mostly left alone um, from, you know, a lot of the violence that takes place in jail. So I was kind of able to navigate that, and I didn't have too many uh, situations that I couldn't handle. Um, And so, you know, I didn't really experience uh, a lot of that kind of tension. I know a lot of people do. But I, I, it didn't really come to me that much. And again, I can tell you this. It's not the inmates doing it. It's the guards. The guards like to keep things divided inside the prisons for control. They like to keep people controlled. Well, thank you so much for um, 
shedding a light. I work in the DYS, Department of Youth Services. Um, so it's different than DCF now it's called. So I'd work with blood and crypts and all the gangs for 12 years. And at one point I was a full-time teacher, music teacher in one of the max um, security detention for juvenile where they actually separated blood and crips, but there was in between like sex offenders that has nothing to do with um, the gangs. What I've noticed was not only the cars, but I felt like the system itself, um, say if you have one juvenile offenders that costs 60 to $80,000 a year, but then you need to have at least like, you know, five to 10 kids. So I felt like it was revolving door. It was almost like system want you to be there. And it was almost like, you know, hey, I need a million dollars to this, to pay salary for these people. Hey, let's lock more kids up and let's not release them. Let's not focus on rehabilitation kind of thing. But that was a juvenile detention programs. I'm not sure. I've never stepped into teach music in an adult prison, but I'm not sure you felt the same, like not from the guard, but the system itself that, you know, once you're categorized as criminal and then put it in the categories of prisoner, for instance, that I feel like, you know, government or like the system itself kind of think as it's a business your customer and then like a billion dollar industry there are so many jails i think there's 60 detention programs at least in the massachusetts alone juvenile but um what what do you think how do you feel about that question i think it's true <clears throat> i think i think that our system uh the criminal justice system was not set up for people to succeed it was set up to create a system that helps people feel safe, but they're not actually safe. When you go to jail, you you learn behavior that's worse than what you knew before. And when you get out, you're much more likely to be more violent. I'll give you a great example. When I got out, um, you know, uh, some years ago, I went to the grocery store, okay? And I had a debit card. And I had never had a debit card before, ever, okay? So I didn't know how to use it. And it, uh, it it was at the time when they had the chips. So when I went to the, you know, to swipe the card at the grocery store register, it wouldn't work. And then the girl at the register, she said, what are you, what are you an idiot? That's a chip card. So I had just gotten out of jail. I did not know how to react to that. So I said to her, Hey, I'm really sorry. I've never had this before. I just got out of prison. When I said that, everybody around went silent, right? As if they were afraid that I was going to do something because they assume just because you're in prison or that you did something that you're violent and that you're going to do something bad to them, right? That that attitude is literally built into our society. So they feel more comfortable with you in jail than when you're out of jail. 
And so now I asked the girl, she taught me how to use it. I did it right. And I left. But that's that that situation stuck with me uh, until now. And I recognize that our society has we try to make people feel safe by saying, look, we took the bad guys and we put the bad guys in the jail. But the problem is, is that every time you get out, you're worse off than you were before. And so then it's easy for you to fall back into those crimes. It's a system designed to continue to go. And what you said is true. When you have all these um, officers that are making a hundred thousand or two hundred thousand dollars a year, you gotta you have to justify that. And so if if prison populations are dropping, it's really hard to justify a two hundred thousand dollar salary for a guard. It doesn't make sense. So what do they do? They arrest more people. It fills up the jails, and then it and then the cycle continues again. I think that. There's been a, a change. And interestingly enough, the reason that the change took place was because we did have maybe the only, I guess, the best thing that came out of the Trump administration was that he signed that Criminal Justice Reform Act, which is a very important law. Um, and be, the fact that he was a Republican and he signed it makes it makes it much more likely that the reform that we need to take place can take place because we need both both sides to come together to really make these reforms take place. But here in Massachusetts, there's no excuse to blame it on Republicans or anybody because it's only been Democrats my entire life. So the system in Massachusetts is set up by by Democrats. And <clears throat> they can't get away from it. They've been in majority since 1959, right? So all of these rules and laws that are that create a system of recidivism and recidivism is the rate by which you return to jail. The fact is, is that our politicians that exist today, they have to answer for that. And people keep going back to jail. Why are they going back? The system should be set up for if the person needs correction, they call it the Department of Corrections, right? They should come out corrected, but they're not. What corrected me was that I found who I wanted to be. I found my faith and I was able to use that as fuel to grow towards what I wanted to be. I always wanted to be a poet when I was a, when I was a young a young boy. So I started writing poems. And I wrote and I wrote and I wrote. And while I was in prison, I got published as a poet. And that gave me confidence and it made me believe I could do better out there. I love movies. I love uh I love music. I like I like stuff like this. This is an uh, this is great that I get to talk to you on your show. I love this this uh, artistic expression of of reality of humanity. This is this is we're talking about real stuff here and we should be able to do that and express ourselves. I started to believe this was possible while I was in prison. And so the prison did not want you to believe that. They made it hard for me to submit my poems. They made it difficult for me to write my books. They made it hard for me to think about movies and want to you know, learn about film and camera. They don't have any of those programs in there. So everything I had to learn, I had to do it in my head or I had to pretend reading, just reading through books, you know? And it wasn't until I got out, I was able to start to apply those skills. But I'm, I'll be honest, I'm a very rare individual in that sense that I found something that helped me. And the real reason is I had a support system and not many people do. So when they go to jail, they don't have family. They don't have, um, you know, uh, maybe a, um, you know, a mentor. I, I was, I was blessed to find mentors 
in the prison system. I, I found volunteers that came in there and they were willing to invest time in me and they were willing to invest uh, wisdom in me. And then when I got out, I was able to continue those some of those relationships and that really set me up for success. But that doesn't happen all the time. <clears throat> that is unbelievable. Um, I was homeless as my book states, you know, I gave my university. I don't know. I don't know if I had survived as a homeless in America versus I was in Japan. I have no idea. But um, when you when you think about homelessness, violence, and then you know the police power and then all that black um, people, well, you're white, but um, a lot of kids that I taught were minorities and then black and then this uh, biases. John, I swear, we're just watching this YouTube of Japanese police. And then the girl was cursing at four police officers in Japan. They let her vent really rude, awful things that she was saying. Instead of handcuffing her, they were like patting her back, trying to calm her down. Two officers were kind of like, it's okay, keep venting, keep venting. And then she was completely cursing and her boyfriend comes in and apologize like this. And then police never arrested them at all. And then police said, we are here to help lives. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is so different, right? Than what you see in America. I've never seen gun. I've never seen police officer holding gun. They have stick and they are like five degrees of Aikido or like karate. They don't need those kind of weapons. It's very interesting. How much of the biases and brutality that I see in this country that when you see anger, your case is blunt, obvious that you are homeless from age six to 11. How would you not be angry? And then how would you not understand the flip side of your attitude in violence like the Japanese police? They were literally like, no, okay, keep venting, keep venting, huh? Like listening in like nodding, acknowledging her, validating her, and that calmed her down. But I don't think that kind of apply in this country. Yeah, so I, I you know, I, I wish that the system of de-escalation could be taught to everybody, right? Because it, the funny thing is prison kind of taught me de-escalation. This is going to sound weird, but it is when you're in a cell with somebody, Right. Uh, uh, you know, a, a cell that's a very small room and it has metal tables and it has metal bunks and it has a, a, a steel toilet. And it's right in front of you. If you hit that person, they might die. If they hit you, you might die. You have to learn how to calm down on your own, because. If you can't talk to that person, there's a chance that somebody is going to get hurt really badly. So in prison, you learn, all right, how do we deal with this? How do we move forward? 
especially when the person is just as big as you, right? You, 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 you don't, you can't get away with being a tough guy. You can't get in a way, you can't get away with imposing yourself on somebody. You have to deal with the fact that they could kick your butt just as much as you can kick their butt. And so I think in the case of police officers, they haven't had that same training that I had to have, which really humbled me because the man who was standing across from me, he could he could hurt me just as much as I could hurt him. And so that means that you have to you have to reset your mind to think about how do I get out of this? Because I don't want to get hurt. How do I get out of this? Because I don't want to I don't want to die. Right. And not only that, I don't want to hurt the person. I don't want the person to die. You you as much as you're angry, you don't really want someone to be hurt. Most people don't want that. That just is a result of a set of a series of circumstances that led to you to be so angry that you're out of control. <laughs> Excuse me. But most of the time, you can have a conversation with somebody and you can talk them like you just said those police officers, they talked the girl down until she was calm. Right. And most of the time when someone is raging and upset, you just need someone to talk to. And it happened for me. I was so angry sometimes. But then they would push me and I would get more angry instead of someone just saying, John, what's wrong? You know, you know, is what can we do? What can we you know? And I probably wouldn't have committed some of the crimes that I did because there wasn't someone to talk to me like a normal person. And so. I agree. I wish that that all that training. Now, there are some officers that do a really, really good job of doing that. And so you see that those that there are more more and more younger officers who are leaning in that direction. They realize they have to try to bring people down. And there are some movements around the country to to bring that kind of training in. It just what what I struggle with is why does it take so long? We know it's a problem. We know we know it. And yet we 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 drag our feet you know and and we make it more and more difficult and it and it doesn't make any sense the uniforms thing too for kids that are um you know uh kids that are black kids that are brown um they grow up fearing the uniform they see a uniform they're afraid of the uniform think about that when 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 i grew up seeing a uniform i was irish so every cop in boston was irish so when i saw a uniform I, I saw someone who was probably related to me. So I wasn't afraid of them. And I never was afraid, which which contributed to me committing crimes because I wasn't afraid of the police. OK, so in the case of young kids that are minorities, they see a police officer and they're afraid immediately. And so you they're already tense to start with just seeing a uniform, let alone if they're in trouble or maybe they did do something that put them in a bad situation. Now they're now they're not just stressed out with that. They're also seeing this person who they think is going to try to kill them. And so it's 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 a it's a level of stress that is so, so hard to get people down from unless you're intentionally de-escalating the situation. And so approaching people like this, let's calm down, not not moving forward towards them, not being aggressive, not being fast, speaking in a calm voice, you know, using phrases like it's going to be OK. And how can I help you instead of, you know, get on the ground and all the, all the things that they have to do. It's just that they were trained the wrong way. And we need to change that um, now. We need to change it now. Well, thank you. Um... 
we've been friends for a while and then I had no idea you had this kind of history and then I really appreciate it and then um speaking of double homelessness that you experienced I know it from the first hand the my mental health stage I was 18 and everybody around me went to college and had a nice party life and fabulous cars and all that stuff when I was homeless. I think the hardest part was comparison and just comparing the life I could have. So it's interesting that you said you didn't have that kind of, oh my God, that kid's have so much going to Disney, whatever, because you were surrounded by the same situation, kids. I had none. But when you are in a adult situation, I'm sure it was more isolated than when you are a kid. Maybe I can't speak for you, but do you recall some of the feelings, vulnerable feelings that you can share when you are homeless? Sure. So at the at the bus station in Worcester, um, at the time, there used to be a Dunkin' Donuts in there. And then there was like um, like a series of chairs. OK. And so I had a bus pass. And so the bus that I needed to take, um, it was uh, to Shrewsbury. So it was a long, um, a long bus. So it usually took like an hour uh, to get there and then an hour back. So it was usually like a two hour wait. So I had I was working part time. At um at people ready people ready is like a late uh, like a, a a temp agency, and so I had just worked a shift at the DCU center in Worcester cleaning the the seats after a um a sporting event, and then so I I went from there to the bus station and I was going to catch a bus to go to the motel right that was my that was my goal I got paid that day I was going to go to the motel, so I went and into the uh, bus station I got a coffee from the Dunkin Donuts and I sat in the chair and I fell asleep I fell asleep I woke up with a police officer kicking me in my chest and he was saying to me get out of here you bum that's what he was saying to me so in that moment I was very afraid because I was afraid of what I would if, like, how I would respond to this man, right? And I was afraid that if I showed him my my bus pass, he was going to shoot me or something. So I, I was I felt totally helpless in that moment. And so what happened was he he stopped, you know, stepping on me because another police officer came in and told him to say, hey, "What are you doing? Knock it off." So when I got up, I had while I was getting up, I pulled my bus pass out and I said, "I have a bus pass." I'm I'm waiting for the bus to Shrewsbury. And so then he backed off. He didn't apologize. <laughs> he didn't apologize. He just went to the next person and he started to mess with the next guy who was also homeless, who he and he was trying to get the people from the bus station out of there. In that moment, I felt totally alone. Like completely alone. But I also felt good because I, I I had overcome wanting to react because I wanted to react. I wanted to hit that guy so bad and I wanted to, you know, and, and I didn't. Now, interestingly enough, as I've gone through my career now, um, I have seen that officer now a bunch of times. 
um, at a bunch of different media events. I've seen him in different places. And I, I, he doesn't know that it's me. He doesn't know. He, he doesn't recognize me because at the time, you know, you have clothes from the shelter and then, you know, you're just, you're just trying to do what you can, you know, and I look very different. I look healthy and I look happy and I look, you know, and so, but I see him, you know, and I think about it all the time. Should I go tell him that, that I was this guy? And, um, the only thing that stops, I'm sorry. The only thing that stops me is I'm a little afraid that maybe he'll, he'll try to, he'll try to, you know, like bring him, bring me back to that time. And I've left, I left that time in the back, in the past, you know, I move forward. Um, and I believe that I believe you have to move forward. You can't, as much as these things has that happened, um, I guess you can say that they were bad. I really like who I am. And I like that I've gotten to this point in my life. So then because I have that perspective, all of the things that happened that were negative, they're actually positive because I can share this story with you or I can help someone else that's going through something similar because I experienced those negative things. So I've decided most of the time to just leave it in the past and to move and to move forward, if that makes sense. Well, maybe you can share this podcast with him and then see what he says. Absolutely. Instead of like confronting him. Now, um, I have a question about Corey. So as adult, um, if you go to prison, I know Corey is going to be a huge speed bump. Uh, like just really hard to get a job or even volunteer. How are you dealing with that? So a, a couple of things. One, um, I'm I happen to be a skilled worker. You know, I have a I, I have a degree. I finished my degree earlier this year, and I have a lot of skills because when before I went to prison, I was kind of a nomad, and I and I went around and got and worked in a lot of different jobs. So I have it. I have a very unique experience, and I have a very unique set of skills. And because of that, I'm, I've been able to get jobs. The other thing is is that. I was able to start at the bottom. So most of the time when you are getting out of prison, there are jobs available for you. However, they're usually very physical jobs and you you don't get paid a lot of money. But there are jobs that are available. The problem is, is that most folks don't want to do that work because it is very dehumanizing. And I like I told you, I cleaned out the seats at the stadium. And sometimes... You would clean a seat and someone left their food all over the place and they and, you know, they just they throw their trash everywhere. And it, and, it, and you don't feel good about yourself when you're picking up other people's trash. It's it, it makes you feel, you know, like like you're small or something. But I had a goal. I have a goal and a belief that I can make a difference with my story and with my work ethic. So I don't care what the Corey says. And not only that. At this point, I've built my own company with my partners Manny and Leanne, and I don't, I don't. If someone has a problem with my background, that's their problem. That's not my problem. Um, and it, 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 if you can't look at my life and see all the things that I've done to change, and don't, and see how I can contribute to your life, you're missing out on an awesome dude. Because <laughs> I'm pretty awesome, and so I, 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 I love people. I'm, I'm happy. I'm joyful, and my past experiences makes me able to do that better so i just don't i don't care anymore about that how you feel about what happened in the past i understand Corey and why it's important for like 
I don't know, working with kids or, um, you know, insurance things and that. So so I'm not going to apply for a job at a bank. Right. Um, but but I can do so much more. And I, I mean, I've executive produced movies now. I mean, who, who else can say that? Right. Your life. My life is so radically different than what it was. And so my story is going to now become an asset that can contribute to those to other people having opportunities. And then the last thing I'll say about that is this. The Corey system that we have is wrong. People should not be paying for things where they already served their time. They should be able to move forward. I recognize that the police needs information about certain acts because we have to keep our children safe. That, that we we understand that everybody understands that, but there, it doesn't mean that they shouldn't be able to work. You're you're basically making the system continue on because when you go to get a job and you and the person tells you, well, I would have hired you, but because of your record, that is a traumatic event, and you will now have to process that. And if you don't have a support system, it's very likely that you're gonna you're gonna act out on that. Or you're going to end up homeless, or you're going to end up. There's so many things that could happen, and we're we're saying with our system, we're okay with that. It doesn't make any sense. So there's been a lot of movement in Massachusetts towards Corey reform, but in my opinion, when you get out of jail, your record should go away. No, no more keeping those records, except for very specific situations that involve the safety of children. And we and we 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 don't even need to say what that is. Those are things that we should be dealt. But no, you and I don't need to know that. The police need to know that. Um, uh, experts and and doctors they need to know that information. But it doesn't help me to know that. How does it help me to know what someone's record is? It doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't change my life in any way, shape, or form. But it does matter when it's when we, we're talking about schools and how we deal with school safety for kids. So. I think that the way we deal with that is we we keep those records specifically for um, personnel who need that. And then for the rest of the people, when they get out, I think that they should get out without a record and move forward. That's my opinion. Well, John, thank you very much for sharing your life story and then very important story and some of the things that we probably never hear. And shockingly, like people assume black folks um, gets locked up more. So when you see people like at the grocery store, that they don't expect you to spend time in prison system. And I feel like that would be more shock for people. Have you gotten those kind of reaction? Except, oh, yeah. except the, uh, the grocery store. Because I feel like if you're black, like, you know, okay, I was in prison. People wouldn't be as shocked. It was like, it's as bad as it is. It would be like, okay, expect it, you know? Because that's kind of how we were taught. But if we are white and we served in prison, like, people would like distance you and, like, or people accept you. I, I think that that's very true. 
you know, for I know people who have gotten out of prison who happen to be minorities that got out of prison around the same time I did, and their struggles to be able to make it back into society are totally unfair because of how they look. And it doesn't make any sense at all because what's the difference between that guy and me just because he has, he's black. That means that he can't do the same job that I was doing cleaning the, the, the stadium. That makes no sense, right? He can, he, I can pick up trash. He can pick up trash. So how is it that he can't get that job? But I can because of the way I look. So so that made me understand the concept of, of white privilege, right? What it means is people look at me and they feel comfortable. And they only they only become uncomfortable when I tell the story. And then, like you said, they make a decision. And you can see the decision on people's faces almost immediately. They either decide, hey, I don't want to be anywhere near you. That's okay. Or... They they say, wow, he's a he's a, he's overcome so much and they accept me. And so but for someone who happens to be black or happens to be Hispanic and they have that same that same story, they don't get the same treatment that I do. That doesn't make sense to me. And I just don't understand it. So, you know, they should get the same opportunities that I get and they should ha and people should accept them or not accept them on the same level. But it is totally unfair. And I have experienced that. When I tell the story, people are usually completely surprised. <laughs> They're like, what? I didn't think that, you know. Now, of course, you know, people who knew me when I was younger, they're not surprised because they were there when I was acting stupid, right? Um, but people who know me as an adult, they're almost always shocked to find out my story. And um, and But maybe because of the way I am, it's easier for them to accept me than it is, um, you know, uh, for them to, like, reject me and, and put me out. But I have a lot of supporters, and I have a huge um, uh, a network of people. Um, I'm I'm in Worcester right now. I'm actually at the church that uh, that took me in after I was homeless. Um, in in Worcester Iglesia Casa de Oración, it's an it's an all Hispanic church. When I was homeless after prison, one of the families in this church took me in and let me live in their house. Okay, that happened. And that's not always the that's not always the case, but that happened to me. I was very lucky um, and very blessed that I was able to meet someone who who was who would trust me like that. And I'm still very close friends with that family to this day because they took me in and uh, and 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 didn't let they they didn't want me to be on the street. And it was funny because I had gotten back into the motel and I ran out of money again. And they took me in the day that I was going to be on the street. They took me in the day. And I'll never forget that. And then you said you met some mentor in prison as well. Are you still in touch with these mentors? Oh, absolutely. So I'm going to tell, I'm going to, this is going to sound funny to people, but two of the wisest, um, just most incredible men I've ever met in my life are doing life in prison um, right now. And these two guys um, are in are in jail for murder. And they have forgiven themselves for what they did. Now, they're, they're, they're never going to get out of jail. However, when I met them in jail, they had, they were the most kind, the most um, loving people I've ever met in my life. They would take care of the other prisoners. They would give their food. They would give their, you know, uh, advice. They would study with people. They taught people English that didn't know English. They would teach people math who didn't know math. They just invested in people. And I saw that and it blew my mind. 
because I was angry, remember? And so when I met someone who was in jail and he's never getting out and he's not angry, I couldn't couldn't reconcile that in my mind. And so I started to listen to these two guys and they changed my life. And then from there, I so I still write with them. They're in prison. I, I write letters back and forth with them. And then from there, it they led me to a, a, a network of prison volunteers. So there's a there's a huge network in Massachusetts of people who go and volunteer their time in the prison system in this state. And the inmates who take advantage of those volunteers, they don't go back to jail. I'm telling you that right now. If you go into those volunteer programs, if if you know anybody who's in prison, if you're watching this and you know someone who's in jail, tell them to go to the volunteer programs because the volunteer programs are where they're going to learn how to get out and function in society. That's where they're going to do it because those people care about them enough that they'll tell them to their face what they need to change, how they need to be, and the things that they need to do to to be able to re-enter into society. Remember, a lot of these people get out of jail. They've been in jail for 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. The world has changed dramatically, right? You know, when I got out, um, my, my phone, right? I never had a smartphone before. The last phone I had before I went to jail was um, uh, a flip phone. You remember the flip phone? The flip phone. <laughs> So now everything's inside this thing. So you you can imagine a guy who's been in jail for like 25, 30 years. He sees this. He'll have no idea how to use that thing because they don't teach that in jail. They don't. So they need to those you need to go to the volunteer programs. And so, yeah, I'm still in touch with some of those folks. Um, they're still in my life. And then, of course, um, the church um, uh, family that brought me in. You know, I'm still close with all these people. Um, and I'm very grateful for all the people, you know, and then of course, Manny, you know, Manny, uh, and Leanne, you know, they're my, uh, my business partners and they, they have supported me through everything that I've done and, and not just them, but all the people in the, in the industry that have uh, been on my side, um, you know, from, from the very, very beginning, including you. So this is funny, Jerry, right now I finally get to tell you, thank you for what you did because you let me, uh, be in a role. In Matt and Matt's movie, where I got to work out some of the things I dealt with as a person who was homeless, and I got to be that person on screen, you know, and that was a big deal to me when you when you brought that role to me, and um, and and I to this day, um, uh, it was one of the best experiences I ever had. And it was a long day; we had a long shooting day that day, and uh, you know, it was a lot of work and in, involved, and all the people that were there. And, um, you know, I, I'm so proud that I was able to do that. And hopefully when them, when that movie comes out, people will see. I, I know exactly what it meant to, to me to be that guy in that situation um, because I was there, too. Um, and so I understood it and I understood exactly what he was going through. So I'm very grateful to you for that. Well, thank you so much for saying that. It means so much. Now. Let's move on to the next question, which is the tools sure. that you use to overcome. And this is by far the favorite part of my podcast that every guest that I had so far shared really extremely useful um, tools that they use to overcome because they're real. So what are the tools that you use to overcome this extreme adversity so nowadays, the if I do have a bad day, right, 
I have a catalog of memories that of things that I've experienced in the past that were really negative. Okay. And usually I can compare whatever, whatever it is I'm going through today to those things in the past. And the things that I experienced in the past, they're, they're, they're tremendously bad. So anything I go through today doesn't compare. So usually when I think about it in that way, when I think, Hey, you've overcome this before, or you've done, you've, you've been through way worse than this. It completely calms me down. And so I don't really rise to the level of anger that I used to. In fact, I would say since I've been out of, out of jail, I think I've gotten really angry three times and all three times I, I, I didn't put my hands on somebody all three times. I was able to eventually calm down. And so, uh, and that doesn't happen. That happens, you know, very rarely. And so the reason is, is because I can think about what happened in the past, John. What, what, uh, what thing did you do before? Where are you going? Why are you so mad? And usually the reason that I'm mad is very small, right? And when I really think about it, when I think back to what I used to get mad about, it's kind of funny. And so I I tend to laugh about it because I was mad, but it wasn't it wasn't something that needed the response that I gave it, right? So I was being stupid, but I didn't know I was stupid because there was nobody around to tell me. Now I know because I'm around to tell me, you know, so I can think about what I did before and that that having access to that is tremendous and it allows me to navigate through really difficult conversations you know from working in the in the film industry sometimes people in the film industry are very difficult to deal with and they're rude and they're they they have um you know you know women go through a lot of things in the film industry that they shouldn't have to go through and I'm able to navigate that because I'm not as angry as I was because I overcame all those things. So every time you overcome something, you should you should consider that a victory and hold on to that victory. And that's what I tend to do. And that allows me to move forward and grow even in difficult times now. Well, thank you very much. You know, sometimes some bad thing happens. And I tell myself, I always compare the worst moment of my life, which was when my my father was raping me. And compared to your own father forcing you to do sexual activities, everything else is like, it's a bad example, maybe, because not most of the people don't go through that. But when I think about the same, like, sense of loss and then everything that I could not control, I empathize with you, but also, you know, what are the victories that you're talking about? Like, you have already overcome these things. Usually, Kids should not be homeless from age six to eleven. As my kids' age, that is the worst nightmare. As a single mom, I would never want them to be homeless, because I was homeless. 
I can't imagine. And then I can't imagine that you survived and I can't imagine all the children around you either. So kudos to you. And then thank you so much for sharing the tools. Is there anything else that you use that people can benefit from? Maybe well, like, poeming, like po writing poems. Oh, so writing poems. One of the best things that ever happened to me when I was in the in the jail, I was submitting my poems, and I, there was an editor. His name is Willard Greenwood, and he is still the editor at a little magazine called Hiram Poetry Review, which is in Ohio, at a school called Hiram uh, College. This guy, man, what a tremendous guy! He took the time to respond to me and he gave me critical feedback and he said i know you're in a tough situation and it might not be easy for you to hear this criticism but this poem you need to rewrite this poem a, a particular poem and th this poem is good but it's not good enough and and you need to rewrite it he wrote me a letter a whole letter i still have that letter I rewrote that poem and I submitted it to him again and he accepted it. And that that little click in my brain changed everything when I think about art. And what happens is you need somebody who says to you, this can be better because you are better. And I, if there's anybody out there that's listening to this, this podcast and they see this, I want you to just look at the screen for a second. And I want you to know that your best is yet to come. Whatever it is you're working on, you can do better. You can. And it's okay to look at it and say, I, can, I need to rewrite this, or I need to reshoot this, or I need to retry. It's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. And if you do that, you're going to give the best effort that you can give. I'm telling you, people are going to be amazed by the things that you can do. So always remember, it's okay to be critical of your own work and to get better. It's okay for people to criticize you. It's not bad for them to tell you, don't do that, or try this, or try that. That's okay. When you can accept criticism and understand that it's not personal, it's just someone trying to help you, you will go to amazing places. You will act in movies. You will write books. You will uh, executive produce movies. You'll be on radio shows. You'll be on Jerry Love's podcast. You can do anything. Just learn how to accept criticism. Learn. Thank you so much. I can't um, hold myself while telling this story of a young man who was locked up. Now he's an adult. I got him a partial scholarship while, while he was locked up when he was 16 for Berkeley College of Music five-week summer program. When he got out, we met up at Berkeley. He had a meeting. Unfortunately, he couldn't pay the whole thing. But that scholarship, while he was locked up, meant so much to him. And he pursued a music career and then started a band. And he actually performed at the Boston Green Fest with his band, Release CDs, toured, and then so proud. And I have another person that I mentored. That's so me. 
receiving the Heroes Among Us at the Boston Celtics in 2015. I told him, hey, some someday you're going to receive an award like me. That boy now is 24, 25. This past Christmas, he asked me, what's your cash app? He gave me $300. I was so touched. And I said, I can't believe this. And he's like, this is, of course, this is the least that I can do for you. One person can change somebody. And then I've seen it over and over. And I'm so happy whoever encouraged you, either the publisher or the two people in prison still. You never know who you meet. And you never know who you influence people or who you are influenced by. And I'm very grateful that you share that with me. I'm, I'm thankful for uh, the opportunity to be on the show. I think this is a great uh, idea. Um, you shouldn't be afraid to talk about the things that you went through. And, and you, shouldn't, you shouldn't have to worry about how people look at you because they don't understand what you went through or they don't understand why you did what you did in response to that. The world is full of different people with different experiences, and all of those experiences add up to this amazing opportunity for us to grow as human beings. You can learn from somebody on the other side of the world. You just have to be willing to listen. And um, and so and and then at the same time, you have to be willing to tell your story too. Everybody's story is important. So tell the stories, man. All everybody who's listening, tell the stories. It doesn't matter. And if someone really doesn't like you, and I have plenty of people who don't like me, that's their problem. That's not your problem. And uh, believe me, there's enough of us out here. And I'll tell you this right now: if you're on, if you're listening to the jury's podcast, and you have someone who's trying to keep you down, and you want to go somewhere in the industry, whether it's you want to write a book, you want to you want to sing a song, you reach out to me. You find me. And I will help you. I promise if I can do it, I will help you and I will support you. Even if I just give you a word of advice, but I promise you, reach out to me and I'll, and, I'll, and I'll help you in any way I can. Well, thank you so much, John. So what is a gift that came from your adversities? That is my last question. I have a life full of joy. Despite the fact that I went through all these negative things, I'm a really happy guy. And even when I have things that don't go right today, I still have that joy because I was able to overcome so much and know that I have value, right? Obviously, I'm in a church. I have my faith. I believe in Jesus. That's where I'm at in my life. I'm not saying everybody has to do that same thing. But I am telling you this. I have permanent joy. Even when I'm down, I'm up because I believe that I have value. And you need to believe that. If there's any system that helps you get there, use that system. My system happens to be belief that Jesus is there for me and he thinks I have value. And that has centered me in my life. I know I have value and that my value can help make other people more valuable. So just believe that. That gift is never ending for me. I'm always waking up with the opportunity to give back to the world, to give something else to somebody else. And it's because I have that joy. Joy is never ending. Joy is never ending. 
Do you know Jimmy Jackson is watching Go John amazing person in the story? Jimmy Jackson is a, is amazing himself. I love that kid. And someday he's going to be everybody's boss in the industry in New England. Watch. I promise you that. He's so talented. This kid has a rap album. He's a cinematographer. He's a PA. He's a sound guy. He's a producer. He's an actor. He does it all. That kid's amazing. I love Jimmy. Hi, Jimmy. <laughs> Hi, Jimmy. Maybe we can get work together. Well, thank you so much, John, for this very real, real, real story. And I am very sorry that this happened. And I'm very sorry that system failed you. It didn't fail me, though, Jerry. It didn't. It didn't at all. I'm, don't be sorry at all. I want you to be grateful because I'm unique and special. And so, because I'm so unique and special, I'm a gift, just, just like you're a gift. You're an amazing jury. You're, you're such an incredible person. You work so hard. You help lift up other, other people. I know that there's tough things that happen to you, but you are amazing. And nothing that happened to you would have, if it's taken away, we wouldn't have you. And, and you are amazing. So don't be sorry for me. Feel great for me. I feel awesome. I'm able to go and help as many people as I can. And I'm I'm very happy. So don't feel sorry for me. Feel happy for me. Wow. John, before I let you go, can you please yeah. tell some advice to possibly, I don't know if people can listen to our podcast in jail. I don't know. But if somebody out there maybe got out of the prison system or got out of the homelessness or maybe currently homeless. By the way, as Jimmy Jackson said, oh, shucks, thanks, guys. <laughs> so, can you please give advice to somebody who's maybe going through the toughest day of their life? I think that... Um... The, the biggest piece of advice I can give to someone who's who's struggling is that it isn't over, okay? Don't give up. Because when you give up, right, you, you miss out on the opportunity to contribute. Everybody has value. All human beings have intrinsic personal value that is unique to them. And they have an opportunity to give back. So, yeah, you're struggling and you're down. You're living in the streets. You're living in the in the woods, right? It's cold. You don't have enough things going on. But I'm telling you, there's nothing that can't be overcome. I've gone through it all. There's some stuff I didn't even talk about here. I just talked about one aspect of my struggles and the things that I went through in my life. And I'm telling you, there's worse things than this. But it, too, can be overcome. Every single person. Every single person has value. So just remember that you have value. I don't care where you are. I don't care what you did. I don't care what was done to you. You have value. And if and if if I can just reach out to you through the screen and you're hearing this, get a hold of me. And I'll prove it to you that you have value. Get a hold of me. And I will prove it to you. You have value. Every single person. Thank you so much, John. You're welcome. Well, thank you very much, everyone, for tuning in to another episode of A Gift from University, and we'll see you next time.